0: Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies, I'm J.F. Martel. For this 105th episode of the show, we were pleased and honored to be joined by Tamler Summers, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Houston and co-host of the magnificent Very Bad Wizards
1: podcast.
0: Our topic was David Lynch's 1992 film Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me although the conversation touches on scenes and ideas from the original TV series, as well as the more recent showcase series that Lynch completed in 2017. Now, most of the time on Weird Studies, we try to proceed such that even listeners without prior knowledge of our topic will be able to follow along. But Tamler, Phil, and I are hopeless Twin Peaks nerds. No sooner had we begun to chat than we got into minutiae that only listeners who are familiar with the Twin Peaks universe will be able to understand. So before you listen to this one, I strongly recommend that you watch Fire Walk With Me. I should probably warn you that the film is dark, like very dark, but it's also very good. If you prefer to listen on without watching the movie or the show, here's a broad spoiler-ridden outline of the story. Twin Peaks is essentially a murder mystery set in a fictional Washington town called Twin Peaks. The murder victim is Laura Palmer, homecoming queen loved by all in the community. The murderer, as revealed in season two of the series, is her father, Leland Palmer. The original show focuses on the efforts of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper as he tries to solve the case. The film Fire Walk With Me is a prequel recounting the events leading up to Laura Palmer's tragic death. And in case that sounds too straightforward, Twin Peaks includes a heavy dose of the surreal and the supernatural. There are entities at work in this small town that are not quite of this world. The man from another place, also called the little guy in What Follows, as well as other characters such as uh, Judy, Bob, and Mike, are among these spirits, whom Agent Cooper encounters as he delves deeper into the enigma that is Twin Peaks. So this one goes out to the diehard Twin Peaks fans among our listeners, of which I know there are many. I want to take this opportunity to thank Tamler for coming on and sharing his brilliant insights. If you dig it as much as we did, please go and check out Very Bad Wizards, on which Tamler and his co-host Dave Pizarro talk psychology and philosophy often through the lens of films, stories, and other works of art. It's one of the very best podcasts out there. Finally, this intro will be incomplete without the usual Patreon pitch, so if you like what you hear today, consider supporting us on Patreon and thereby gaining access to various exclusive goodies. If you're already a patron, well, thank you very much. Okay, on with Twin Peaks' Fire Walk with me, Phil Ford, and Tamler Summers. Let's rock! At the beginning, we wanted to do Hitchcock, and then we've decided to, to go towards Twin Peaks instead, Fire Walk With Me. So, Tamler, you said you were a big fan of this film, of Fire Walk With Me, which is the prequel to Twin Peaks, I guess, 1992 David Lynch film that takes place before the events of the
1: original two seasons of the TV show. So why why did you want to do this? The thing that made me think of it was I saw your Patreon post where you mentioned Firewalk with me, and you said, like, it might be the best Lynch. And you kind of said it like, no, try, like, I'm being serious here. Mm, because- that was Phil, yeah. Oh, that was you. Okay. Yeah, was, yeah I was, was trying filmed. to think. I uh, I was trying to think who it was. For some reason, I thought it was you because I don't think it was a signed post, right? Oh, shit. I forgot to put my name on it. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did it because I actually had that thought. Uh, but I guess because we were interacting more. Anyway, so when yeah. you said that, I, I kind of agree. I think it, it is maybe the best Lynch, even though it is not regarded as such. I mean, I think now the genius of the film has been recognized in mm. hindsight. And maybe it, it's a little overblown how much of a critical disaster it was when it came out. But in any case, I love Firewalk With Me as its own thing. And then I love it as a part of Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks The Return and that whole mythology. And I, you know... Since 2017, my daughter and I just started binging Twin Peaks first, which she hadn't seen, and I had only seen once. And you know, as a prep, and then Fire Walk with Me as a prep to watching the return. And it was, you know, it's this incredible experience watching the show and then rewatching it. We've rewatched it three times in its entirety. I mean, it's so it's it's almost hard to separate. Also, the degree to which it's kind of a bonding experience with my daughter, too. It's something (laughs) we spend summers doing, is just obsessing about it and theorizing and coming up with new thematic connections. And at every level, this show has been this enriching experience for me over the last four years.
0: Of all films to bond with your daughter over, (laughs) Fire Walk With Me, as will become quite clear to listeners who haven't seen it, is a strange, but really, I love that. I love that. That's the film you're bonding over. Because Fire Walk With Me is basically the story of Laura Palmer, who was basically the MacGuffin of the original series, right? She was the murdered homecoming queen that kind of spurs the action of the original TV series. And she exists only as a corpse in the original series. But then Lynch made a film telling her story. And that's Fire Walk With Me. And uh, man, Fire Walk With Me is one of the dark, because Phil said it best. What was it? He said that it's horror drenched in sorrow, which you don't often find. There's one other film, a French film called Martyrs, that plays to that particular affect and it's one of the few films that i think it's like a horror film but it's a horror film about sadness and that's what makes it so so effective i find and so uh devastating is that what you said phil am i misquoting
2: yeah pretty much Uh, that it's a horror film but it's horror that's built up from layer upon layer upon layer of sorrow an all you can eat buffet of garmin bosia right
0: (laughs) right cream corn yeah
2: yeah, and you know, a film that sort of enacts its subject. It's about these extra-dimensional entities that eat our pain and suffering. And the film itself is just it glows with
1: pain and suffering. It does. And I think this is especially true of the last two thirds or three quarters of the of the film. When you get to Laura Palmer's story, I wonder what you guys think of the opening 35, 40 minutes, the Deer Meadow scenes, th- there's a li- d- different tone to them and and at times a comic tone to those scenes. Yeah. You know, and that's a Lynch specialty is mixing horrific sorrow with comedy, but it seems like there's a tonal shift that comes, you know, with the bridge of the crazy Philip Jeffrey scene. There's a tonal shift in the movie. And uh, yeah, so I wonder what you think of lynch's choice to start off with something that's not twin peaksy because it's certainly not that if anything it's like a dark tulpa of twin peaks i really enjoy those scenes Uh,
0: i i absolutely love it and that's our hitchcock connection (laughs) because hitchcock would put in these tonal shifts you know in psycho and vertigo and i love it i've always loved that my favorite part of firewalk with me at a level of just pure kind of entertainment or, or even intellectual stimulation. Cause I, I love mysteries. I love the whole, I love that chapter. I just, I could watch that on repeat. Um, not that I don't love yep. the rest, but to me, it's the expanded Twin Peaks universe kind of thing where you're seeing a Twin Peaks story in another part of the universe so that I see it as the first intimation of what we get in season three, which is to put it in Phil and my terms, Between Fire Walk With Me and and The Return, we go from the thin end of the wedge, meaning that in Fire Walk With Me, we're very much in the subjective space of the characters, such that it's still possible in Fire Walk With Me, more or less, afterwards to say, well, all the supernatural elements are just metaphors for psychological states or something like that. Whereas Mm -hmm. in The Return, we go to the thick end of the wedge and we're seeing that, no, there's a whole Twin Peaks universe that includes like the manhattan project and all kinds of other things and i find that that opening chapter to fire walk with me is the first sense we get of that thick end of the wedge expanded universe of twin peaks to put it in kind of marvel dc terms which probably isn't the best thing to do but you know what i mean yeah
1: i mean i'm struck always when i see it by the degree to which it's more of a weird, distorted reflection of Twin Peaks. It Mm -hmm. has little matches, right? Like there is Alt Norma's Diner, right? There's Alt Cooper, but this time it's uh, Chris Isaac or Chester Desmond who has some of the Cooper qualities, but I I would say he's a little more like Richard in Part 18. You know, he has... Both the kind of dark right. and the light within him, and you know, or or maybe you could look at Sam Stanley. Kiefer Sutherland is, I think, very good. He has some good Cooperish elements to him. Um, so maybe the two of them together are like an alternate version of Cooper. And mm. the sheriff station, you have like. Lucy and evil Lucy, you know, in Dear Meadow, you have evil Sheriff Truman, evil Andy. In some ways it seems more real, but in other ways it just seems like more impoverished, kind of shittier, you know, like a shittier version of Twin Peaks um, where the person who dies isn't the homecoming queen, but just like a drifter Mm. who nobody really knew and nobody cared for. You know, there was no pretense to her being protected or or treasured by the community. That's interesting. I think that's a part of it that actually runs through the whole movie is, you know, everything is a kind of a reflection of something else. Twin Peaks, right? Yeah. You know, everything is doubled. Everything is doubled. Right, exactly. And that's something I think in the return, Twin Peaks itself becomes more like Deer Meadow-ish, you know. Um, Right. That's an interesting dynamic to the first part, too. Doubled and inverted as well. You know, there's
2: Norma and then there's Irene. Good Norma and evil Norma or good Andy and evil Andy. These are also like inversions. And the reason I'm insisting on that figure of like inversion or reversal is because reversal, just like reversing the film, reversing the soundtrack, like just playing things backwards becomes such an important leitmotif Mm. in all parts of the Twin Peaks mythos. And it goes beyond just an affectation of style, like, uh, oh, wouldn't it be really cool if we had the man from another place speaking backwards so that when we play it backwards, it sounds a lot distorted. The famous kind of Twin Peaks talk. I mean, I'm sure when Lynch had the idea to do that, it's just like, oh, that's cool. But it becomes, uh, I mean, Twin Peaks mythos generally is just like the just a great example of a a story that grew in the telling. Yeah. And I get the impression that a lot of little things that might have just been one-offs just became fundamental thematic parts of the show. And that sort of trope of reversals or inversions, uh, uh, that's one of them.
0: Yeah. The thing of of time moving in two directions and of like, what is it? The future pasts line.
1: Uh, is it future or is it past is it future
0: or is it past this double movement of time and things reversing and inverting for instance there's a totally unsurreal scene at the beginning of the laura palmer uh, part of a fire walk with me where laura palmer is kind of accosted by bobby outside the school and bobby's jealous right because she's been with uh what's the other guy's name I forget. Uh, James. James. Yeah. She was with James and he's just, he's been looking for her. So he's confronting her. Where were you? And, and then she just starts, he uses her magic on him. She just kind of smiles at him and kind of charms him. And then he, his mood completely shifts and he Mm -hmm. just falls into her, under her control and then what does he do but he walks backwards back into right. the school he just yeah. Yeah. you know he he's he's like almost it's like almost like he, she's reversing the entire scene like what just happened did not take
1: place he's going back inside the school Oh that's good Yeah and, and and other people are also just like it's like the everybody's lost their sense of balance and they're just like staggering around um, yeah. as he's walking backwards you can kind of see these other people and it, it's like they've completely been disoriented And and like the world has started turning in the other direction or something like that. It's very cool. I love that whole scene, that whole sequence.
0: Yeah, I just love the suggestion that what's going on in Twin Peaks is actually a kind of exploration of of the nature of time. That's putting it in totally abstract terms. But my wife is really into true crime stories these days. So she's watching all these documentaries and reading these books and talking to me about these These murder cases. Uh, I don't know. She's really into that stuff. But what I love about true crime, and I I don't read much of it, but I did watch the Sons of Sam documentary on Netflix, which I really enjoyed. It's really kind of creepy. It touches on satanic panic and all kinds of weird 80s stuff. And um, what I love about true crime is that whenever I watch or even a really good psychological crime thriller, it's almost inevitable that a kind of supernatural mood sets into these stories. There's always something strangely surreal or, I don't know, supernatural about crime. And you see that in Twin Peaks, the world of crime, the criminal underworld. And the fact that we use the word underworld to kind of characterize the criminal mm-hmm. community is telling. Uh, you're stepping out of the proper order of things. And crime, like the investigation of a crime, is always an investigation of the past. What happened? How do I read the signs in the present to figure out, to bring into the present something that essentially doesn't exist anymore, something past, but something that's of immense importance in determining how we proceed, how we move forward? And uh, I I find that Twin Peaks is, if you want to look at it as a kind of an example of noir fiction, It kind of really goes fully into something that is hinted at in many instances of crime fiction, which is the strangeness of the past and how figuring out what the past was is kind of key to to moving forward. But at the same time, the past bifurcates in different ways the past is not fully knowable it's just murky and strange and surreal and dreamlike and um i just that's the that's what i get from that's what i love most i think about twin peaks
1: yeah i mean like uh The whole first, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, there are so many pictures of clocks and mentions of time. Like the sheriff, the evil Truman says, it's 4.30. Like you can't go look at the body. And then I think he says, we work on uh, our own clock or something like that. Uh, And then... You know, there's these just shots of a clock. Teresa Banks's trailer has like three clocks in it, and we see the the times uh, in it. There's that whole "Do not wake before 9 a.m." So <clears throat> it is clearly putting into your subconscious an obsession with time. And of course, the famous like, what is it, 2:53? Yeah. That the that the clock can't get past. Um, that'll come back in the return in a big way towards the end in part 17. But just Laura. At her maybe darkest, worst moment, um, after she knows that it's Leland, she actually saw his face, and mm-hmm. then she's in class, and the clock just gets stuck yeah. on two fifty three. You're absolutely right that this is a time obsessed uh, movie, and the time doesn't work like we think it works right. in any of Twin Peaks,
2: which is a kind of a hard thing to depict. Like, how do you show time moving sideways or, or you know, orthogonally or or, or or, whatever? You know what I mean? Like, not in the linear direction we expect. You know the scene from Twin Peaks, The Return, season three, when Cooper is in that mauve world? Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's, he's on his way out of the lodge, but he has a number of like kind of stops along the way. And he is in this kind of strain. That's one of my favorite. Yes. moments in the entire series it's kind of an apartment
0: um, kind of thing is that the yeah. one yeah.
2: yeah isn't that in episode eight Th- three nope. right oh three. So so three right right sorry yeah but in that the way it's shot is con- with all these stutter like mm-hmm. stutter steps like um jump cuts where we suddenly like jump back a few seconds so it's like trying to give us this a visual sense of time just being like a slippery substance something that's kind of moving around and space as well and you know We never encounter time without space and we never encounter space without time. You know, in that very same scene, he to escape the extremely malevolent entity chasing him. He runs up onto the roof and the roof is of this completely different structure, this little cube floating through space. Mm, Uh, And then when he comes back down, he's in a different apartment like room with a different person. Played incidentally by the same actress who played Renette Pulaski, um, oh, yeah. and you have just have all of these moments of dislocation, spatial and temporal dislocation. That scene in particular, but it's just something that Lynch does throughout the Mythos. It's just a fundamental part of what the Mythos is. Is just this meditation on the fraying of um, of space time.
1: I wonder to what extent this this relates to another clear theme that's running through Fire Walk With Me and also The Return. But I, I noticed that especially in Fire Walk With Me and then watching The Missing Pieces as well, this idea that there are two worlds, And that there is, as the little man says, intercourse between the two worlds. So there is this world of dream or, you know, image or TV. Sometimes it seems like they're... Characters in a TV show, especially in in the return, I think there is that sort of suggestion. And sometimes they're just completely separate worlds that are distinct. Well, they're always distinct, but sometimes they're superimposed, but sometimes they mix. Yes. Right? And I think that opening of like the axe coming to the television. First you're you just have the static of the blue and you don't even know what you're watching. And then all of a sudden, like the violent reality interacts with the image or the other world and this idea of like you know one world intruding on another world somehow that and the idea of time being slippery and unstable probably have some connections oh absolutely totally
0: Totally. Um, it's funny because this is exactly what I'm reading and thinking about these days. I, I just uh, read the first part, well, reread, read. I don't know. I, I read bits and pieces. I read at it in the past, but I read it systematically, closely. Uh, the first part of David Hume's treatise of mm-hmm. human nature. I love that text. It is. It's, it reads like Beckett's fiction at point. You know, the. I don't know if you've read it, but there's a moment where he's he's, he's trying ago, yeah. to convince himself that. something other than himself exists. And he's just trying to like find a way out of his, you know, because it's everything's impressions and ideas. There's no way out of his immediate experience, his representations. But one thing I love about Hume is his theory of the imagination. He says, the imagination sets the rules of the possible, not reason. And the imagination can concoct All kinds of crazy things, and he describes them like fiery dragons and all all that stuff that exists in the imaginary world. And then he goes on to argue that the causal order that makes such things as dragons and unicorns impossible in our reality he argues that that entire causal system is actually just a figment of the imagination. So that the causal order exists within a kind of wider imaginal world of surreal, infinite possibility. And so you have these kind of two worlds. So I'm just mentioning that because the way you just described it, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's reflected in the title, Twin Peaks. Another book I just read is Antonin Artaud's uh, Theater and its Double, where he really works with this idea that everything has a double and that we just see half of everything. Like there's always, everything kind of produces a specter, which is just as real as the thing, but not perfectly perceptible unless you're attuned with it. Uh, This idea that there are two worlds, two series of the real interacting and intersecting at specific points, like in moments of synchronicity or in moments of of intense affect of like horrific crimes where the mythical imaginal phantasmal world breaks into this world and screws up our idea of time because all of a sudden it seems like what's happening now was ordained a long time ago or something's coming at us from the future. I don't know this. I just, I just love that, that way of looking at Twin Peaks and it explains a lot of, why I was so deeply affected by it this week uh, when I watched it again.
1: But there's this other element also, we, you know, a lot of people see Twin Peaks, fire, well, Firewalk With Me as a kind of happy ending. The way it's commonly phrased if you read about it is she acquires her own agency. She takes control. And I was really struck watching it this time around, thinking about that, of how much control she's in starting at the end of the movie, right? It's like she, through sheer force of will, frees Ronette, Pulaski, like doing something impossible, untying her, you know, I guess, you know, via the angel, untying Ronette Pulaski. But if you, the way it's shot, it looks like Laura, through incredible strain on her, is doing it and also getting the door open. And then also I was struck by the fact that Laura seems like she is making Leland kill her. Yes. And Leland doesn't want to. Like Leland doesn't want to kill her. She is making him do it so that... You know, at least in one interpretation, which I find plausible, so that this cycle of abuse and and violence and darkness doesn't continue. It ends with Laura Palmer. And she Mm. is the one that's taking charge of that moment. And what allowed her to get to that point is the fact that she faced reality. Finally, the mask came off and she realized that it was Leland, her father, who was raping her, sexually abusing her for all these years. And I don't know. You see this in The Return, too. I think you see it most clearly in Nadine's story that there needs to be a kind of waking up, a kind of awakening outside of a reality. And the rea- and the waking up is painful, but it's liberating and ultimately positive. Yeah. And... And so the reason I bring this up now is that at times it seems like the two worlds are on the same level of reality. Neither is more real. Like you were saying, neither is more real than the other. They're just two aspects of a larger being. But then at times it also seems like there is an underlying reality. Maybe it's an it's a reality that underlies both the worlds, you know, so the two worlds are superimposed on the underlying reality, but that like good, happy stories, the few happy stories there are within the Twin Peaks underlying universe are when people awaken to to a kind of deeper reality. Mm. Painful as it is, it is ultimately the thing that sets them free and allows like Nadine to set Ed free too. So it's both, it's positive for the person and it's positive for the people around them like laura you know like she realized uh, look, look what i almost did to donna and i can't keep doing this and it was a painful realization but she did it and you know of course it's tragic because she also has to die for this
0: that aligns with uh, at the very beginning when she calls herself a turkey <laughs> and she goes like gobble gobble and and mm-hmm. james is like you're not a turkey but a turkey is the only remaining sacrificial animal we have, right? So she's like <laughs> describing <laughs> herself not
2: a, as... Not a bad point. Yeah, yeah oh,
0: that is so interesting. That's great. She's She has to be sacrificed for this to end. That idea that Laura offered herself as a kind of sacrifice is, I think, confirmed. Or at least you can get a lot of support for that theory in The Return.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I really like... Tamler, what you were saying about the necessity of awakening? Yeah, I'm thinking back to you know the original series, the the first season, where there, I, I think Hawk says this. I think can't quite remember that the the lodge can be accessed in two ways through fear and through love. Yeah. And there's two forms of gnosis in Twin Peaks, the gnosis of fear and the gnosis of love. Mm, It's interesting because one of the running themes in Lynch's films, or at least the way it gets talked about in criticism, is the idea of like, you know, the darkness lurking beneath the seemingly tranquil Mm. surface of suburban America. That's what people always say about Blue Velvet, right? But it doesn't really quite work that way. It's like a overly schematic way of thinking about it. What it is, is, to me that we're presented with a world that has places where the boundary between worlds gets thin. And that can happen anytime and any place. And we can go around a corner and boom, all of a sudden you feel the presence of that other world pressing in on you. It happens constantly. This is one of the things that music does, where you can have a musical cue and it's almost like a cloud passes over it there's a great moment when they're taking the little prop plane into the private airbase to see Lil's weird dance in that (laughs) first part you hear what's called in the soundtrack the deer meadow shuffle and just for a moment there's this kind of as you see a kind of point of view of the the plane cockpit this kind of It's almost like a little cloud of musical unease that just kind of drifts across, almost like you're watching a sun dappled landscape and you see just a shadow of a cloud drift across the landscape, just drifts across for a second, and then it's gone. And then it's back to that kind of groovy lounge jazz and the kind of absurd, surreal comedy of Lil's Little Dance. And those moments happen constantly. Sometimes very dramatically and sometimes so subliminally you don't notice them. It is given to any character, however marginal, to stumble into one of those places where it gets thin, Mm -hmm. where suddenly the presence of that other world becomes palpable, even if you don't know what it is. I think about my dog who flips out when there's a storm somewhere in central Indiana, like miles and miles away. And it's sunny where we are, but my dog gets scared because he could just feel mm-hmm. that there's like a disturbance in the air. It's like that. And the thing that gets people tumbling headlong through those little, those, those thin places where those thin, thin places turn into rifts or tears in this pretty tenuous fabric are moments of fear and moments of love. And getting back to the finale of this film, some people think of it as really sappy. I mean, apparently Thomas Ligotti thinks of it as like treacly and saccharine. Some people feel that it's tacked on. I disagree emphatically. To me, it's an incredibly powerful ending. And to me, it's what you see is the, the gnosis of love in the purest and most forceful form. And this is one thing I love about Lynch. He never does that cheap, emotionally self-protecting thing, like falling into irony. The Robins are back. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. People are like, <laughs> right. oh, as if. No, no, he actually means the Robins are back. There's a fucking right. angel. Right. It's yeah. an actual angel. It's not a quote unquote angel. Right, right.
1: absolutely.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, no. especially with the, the Carabini C minor mass that plays in the, the exit from the film. It's just a sledgehammer moment of that that gnosis of love. I'm sorry, I'm not expressing it terribly well, but... No,
1: I think that's so interesting that those are the two ways of getting into the lodge. And I think we associate fear and kind of a delusion as being like the most common way. But there are these little moments of love. And, you know, that's, I think, the biggest macro example. There are also like... Even Leland, after the thing with the fingernails, you yeah, know, that, that horrible scene, uh, you know, that just shows how deep the emotional abuse is in the house as mm-hmm. well. And there's this picture of Leland, and he's trapped in his anger and but then all of a sudden he just, like, there's this little light and he all of a sudden yes. just kind of, he gets like a little glimpse of something. of And it's a love glimpse. He goes in and and he says he loves Laura so much and he means it, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, I, and, and I think another echo of that is the incredible scene in the club, the pink room, they call mm. it, because that's the Bottle of Menti song that's playing at the time. So when Donna is naked and, and you know, at this point Laura has kind of, helped Donna along in her corruption, and she is sitting with Ronette, Getting oral pleasure, right? And then all of a Mm -hmm. sudden, she looks over at Donna, and it's that same kind of light, that same. And all of a sudden, it's this instinct to protect. She covers her, she covers her, her chest, and she, and it's that same instinct to protect. I think that Leland shows, like, oh my God, this is my daughter, and she's hurting and she's distressed, and I need to protect her. It's this little glimpse of love, and it's like that. That is also this thing that can happen, and I don't know why I associate that necessarily with the lodge, but I associate it with. A kind of breakthrough into a different kind of yeah. world. Yeah. And
2: there's a great little subliminal musical connection that kind of says exactly what you just were saying. And I only noticed it on this rewatch that at that moment where Leland apologizes to Laura, yeah. you hear a little bit of the cue that Angelo Badalamenti wrote for that last scene. Which is sutured to the the carabini, oh. just a little bit, just a little foreshadowing of that the redemption. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel. I it's mean, redemption as, through love.
0: As awful as Leland Palmer is as a character, I, I first of all I can't remember the actor's name. I always forget that guy's Ray name. Weiss. Ray Wise. Ray Wise. He is such an amazing actor, he and he is, manages yeah. in this terrible role to generate a kind of sympathy for how. Enslaved he is by Bob, right? Whether we want to call Bob—a kind of psychosis or a, an actual kind of entity—he's enslaved by this. And there are moments where he he can actually try to liberate himself for just a few, even if, if it's just an hour or two, and then he gets—it's so sad, you know. And and that's why the—it's not like just Laura's sorrow that's central in this film, but also Leland Palmer's sorrow yeah, and absolutely. the mother's sorrow. Yeah. And this is why I think you guys are touching on something that I think is really important in Twin Peaks and probably the reason why Ligotti, uh I don't know if you know Thomas Ligotti. Mm-mm. You should check him out. He's a weird fiction author. He's unbelievably yeah. brilliant. Uh, and he's contemporary, still writing today. But anyways, the reason Ligotti doesn't like the what he calls the treacly endings is because there's an affirmation in Lynch of the power. I, I do think there's a kind of Manichaean good versus evil thing going on. And he really does believe that Maybe that deepest reality that you're talking about, Tamler, that deeper, deeper reality, which sustains those two worlds is mm-hmm. actually a world of good. Um, mm-hmm. And Agent Cooper becomes a kind of like representative of that. I, I just love that character. And I, one of the most painful parts of watching The Return for me was watching him, uh, first of all, be, he was ev- he's evil Cooper at the beginning. Then he becomes this kind of puppet, right? I um, uh, can't remember the name. She Dougie. keeps saying. Duggie. Dougie. Dougie, right. Um, the greatest. And, uh, but at the end, when Cooper comes back, it's almost like, Superman or something. It's like Superman like just finally, you know, frees himself from the the kryptonite shackles and is able to take action again. And then, and then of course he fails in a sense at the end of the return, but he doesn't give up. His last, I think, the last one of the last lines in the show, if I remember correctly, is like, "What time is it?" Which is interesting. What year is oh, it? What year is it? Which is another yeah. reference to time. Yeah. But yeah. he's not going to give up, even though the cycle is continuing in this kind of like a new version of the universe where anyways i'm just i i do believe that there's a kind of um battle between good and evil in lynch and that he is ultimately on the side of good whatever that means you know maybe in kind of platonic sense good is something we can't even hope to find but it keeps determining how things go somehow it's like this transcendent impossible thing but I don't know. That's hopeful to me. It gives me hope.
1: It's funny. I agree with you about the good being the underlying reality, perhaps, for Lynch. I think he is kind of fundamentally optimistic in that sense. I don't know if I agree with you in your interpretation of Cooper and good Cooper and when he wakes up. And I think we have been rooting for it for so long because he's such a fun character, but... Yeah. He, he actually really doesn't do anything. He doesn't... He's not the one that beats Bob. Freddy, the guy with the green glove, beats Bob. Oh, yeah. He's just kind of like... And he kind of arrives there late. And then when he goes back in time, I mean, one of the things that I think everyone had such trouble with the return is, is that it seems like he undid Laura's own act of redemption and, and undermined oh. her agency, which I think is... Is somewhat plausible and really like the failure is deeper. It's not just, well, he's gonna keep trying. It's no, he's gotta stop. This is a cycle that he can't break. He's Nadine not recognizing that Ed is in love with Norma hmm. and like, wow. and he just hmm. keeping on with the hope that, you know. That Ed will fall in love with her. he's he's trapped in that cycle, and he's uh, you know my daughter pointed this out today, but you could look at that end scene. The way Cooper is holding on to her shoulder, my daughter suggested, is he pushing her down, like not allowing her to hmm. to to leave? Oh. um is that, you know, I, i'm I'm not sure about that because I think it in some ways, the idea of Cooper as, quasi villain is more fleshed out in the return yeah so totally agree about the, the underlying good in the lynchian universe not so convinced about cooper though as representing yeah, i know that.
0: i take that that's a great point and i i need to i've i watched the return exactly one time and it's not the type of thing you can really know uh, through one watch so uh yeah, yeah point taken I, I need to watch that again what are your what are your thoughts yeah. on that, Phil?
2: Yes, interesting. I don't know if you have gotten into any of the well, I should say
1: either of the Mark Frost authored books, the spin-off books. No. I, I mean I I I read a little bit of the final dossier, but not the secret history. Secret history is
2: I liked a lot. Final Dossier is thinner, both in terms of page count and also I think in terms of inspiration. I don't like it quite as much. And one thing I don't like about it is that it tries to be explicit about things that I think might have been better left implicit, but Mm -hmm. it actually makes explicit the criticism that you just made. That uh, Cooper always had this kind of white knight side of him. Yeah. Wanting to save people. Whether or not that was like the wise or right thing to do. Okay, we have like the Twin Peaks world, the mundane world, and then we have the other world, the lodge world, whatever. It's not just the lodge. Clearly, it's a much larger ecology. But um, the question is, what's the thing that underlies that? And is it, you know, some kind of good? And I, I like that idea. The way I think of it, it's good. But just because it's good doesn't mean it has any ability to affect actions it might be impotent right. uh, or mm. uh, it's funny. I heard an interview with a, an occultist named Jason Louvre. I think it was Jason Louvre who was talking about a period of sustained magical working, which kind of burned him out, fried him out. And he, he clearly went through a fairly extended kind of dark night of the soul type period. And he was talking about something that was either a dream or an acid trip. I can't remember which, but the image remains really burned in my mind, which is seeing the entire universe as just a cosmos of suffering, just fucking infested with demons, but that there's this sort of like chain of bodhisattvas ringing around the universe, praying constantly Mm -hmm. for the wounded and damned souls of the cosmos, but ultimately in a position just of like spectators. They're just watching it happen. And so it might be that there is this kind of guardianship of the whole, but that might have nothing whatsoever to do with any outcome, either the specific outcome of Laura and Dale, or just the outcome of, like, the entire cosmos, which, when you think of it, that is pretty fucking dark.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and speaking of that, the idea that Laura says in another awesome scene, this is just one great scene after another in Fire Walk With Me, Yeah. but when she's yeah. lying on the couch with Donna and, you know, Lynch shoots it from above and she describes falling in space and then just extinguishing into a, a big burst of fire... And says that the angels are not, you know, they're not helping her. They've all gone away. They've all gone away. Maybe they're spectators far, far away. But like, even if it's an underlying good, an underlying good that has to extinguish you or something like that for you to, to, to reach it. The other thing that what you just said made me think of, Phil, is Dougie and his goodness, which... Like, and I think Dougie and, and when you rewatch it JF I think one of the absolute joys of rewatching The Return is going back to the Dougie scenes now that you know. Oh, I can't Now wait. that you know yeah. that, you know, you're not waiting for him to, you know, wake up as good Cooper and you can just appreciate those scenes as they are. They're kind of comic masterpieces. Oh, I agree with that. I saw that. You, you saw it the first that. time, yeah. I, I, I did yeah, yeah. a lot, but but I also probably was a little frustrated at times, although I, I got waiting into the rhythm of wake it, up probably after the first, like, five or six episodes. But anyway, the yeah. the uh, the thing about Dougie that's so interesting is he never does anything. He he in fact is like like almost to the point of seeming disabled. He has no ability to affect any. around him. But because of that, everybody becomes good around him. He, he creates goodness through not doing anything, Mm. you know, and it's such a like contrast to good, yeah to good coop who's constantly (laughs) wanting to save people and intervene. And, and then there's Dougie who has to be led around literally at, at everything. And because of that, you know, he just makes everybody's lives better throughout the return that's true so the cake <laughs> yes yeah,
0: everything there's uh yeah you're right it's true he's kind of this um holy fool or something right? not
1: acting is the way in which he makes like the Mitchum brothers great lovable characters by, right. by the end <laughs> and uh you know saves his family and and even redeems uh what's his name
2: oh that shit heel who was trying to set him up
1: yeah, I can't exactly. remember
0: his name. Uh, those scenes are hilarious. Naomi Watts is so funny in those scenes, too. The She's Vegas so
1: scenes funny. are just a pure pleasure, you know? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. In retrospect, Lynch did something very, very clever. It's just that, you know, in Twin Peaks, he created Cooper as a figure of unalloyed good, which is what the fans yeah. loved about him, but also makes him a, a little bit deficient as a character. Mm-hmm. What he wanted to do is he wanted to turn... Cooper into a human being. And he did it in this extremely clever way by splitting him. You have bad Coop who has all of Cooper's efficiency, his ruthless efficiency, but like none of his good qualities. He's just a, a figure of, as he tells that fucker Ray. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I
1: don't need anything I want. I don't
2: need Yeah, that's right. And um, with Cooper it's sort of like taking white light and splitting it into its various colors through a prism. He sort of disassembles Cooper and we can see this, this really dark side and this side of joy and love and light. And then it's sort of like a stereoscopic image where the two images kind of meet and overlap. And he's like, Oh, and that's Cooper who we've been waiting for all this time, such that, I mean, if you take that kind of darker view of him, It's like really fucking up at the end of season three, uh, which I can't banish the feeling that that's probably true, that he really did just fuck it all up at the end. Then there's a context for it. You're just like, oh, yeah. Even though I suppose it's not exactly Cooper who fucks
1: it up at the end, it's Richard, but... I don't know it gets complicated it's hard to deny just the way just the feel of the the final shot and the return that that was not successful Um, yeah no I agree with that it's not a happy ending one thing I wanted to have I was interested in your thoughts about is the codedness of everything. Um, and it's, I guess this is especially apparent, but not exclusively in the first 30 minutes or 35 minutes. So, of course, you have the—what's the, the uh, what's her name? Lil. Lil right, yeah. yeah. Um, but even just the way David Lynch is talking, right? Give Stan Stanley the glad hand. He's come over from Spokane. You know, just the way they're talking to him, the fact that Sam Stanley says the office furniture is worth $27,000. and Right. Uh, and, like, that everything... It's, and the way Irene, who is, you know, evil Norma, she says, uh, I think it was what you'd call a freak accident. And Jack the Woodsman says, Irene is her name and it is night. Don't go any further with it. There's nothing good about it. Like, the, these just sound like codes. But I don't exactly know what to make of it. I mean, maybe codes in a dream, you know, as part of somebody's subconscious or what, you know, like what to make of the coded language. Because I think it also is like you see it in the rest of the the movie as well. There are times where there's some reference to something else that we don't get. Personally, I
0: really enjoy that. That's what I saw Fire Walk with me first before I even watched the series in ninety. probably 93 or 94 when it came out on video and um i was immediately drawn into it because of that cryptic coded layer of meaning there that you're you're getting snippets of something bigger and you're it's up to you to try to figure out what that thing is yeah. I, that's one of the reasons i love that opening sequence in Firewalk with me is precisely because the whole thing is kind of this weird surreal puzzle and again just realize like the name of the dancer that Commissioner Gordon hires, I guess, to convey a bunch of information to the agents is a way for Lynch to tell us you're in a universe where you need to interpret now, yeah. okay? and 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 not necessarily that there's some kind of ultimate solution to the puzzle, but that's the mode that you need to inhabit to properly see this film is you need to be reading signs, interpreting signs. Mm-hmm. Again, it has something to do with, with time, I think, and with that other world that, you know, you were talking about two worlds, that world of the imagination where things are connected not by causal relations, but by relations of sign- of meaning, synchronistic relations of symbolic meaning or something like that. And it goes with the backwards thing. Like, for example, Lil is a name that is spelt the same whether you write it, you mm-hmm. know, you read it frontwards or backwards. And I've always loved to... Allow myself to interpret Twin Peaks and and have theories about what's going on. Yeah, those are, that's my impression. I, I that's my favorite thing about Twin Peaks, and I, my favorite parts of Twin Peaks. The ones that I get most of a thrill from are the lodge scenes where we're given a kind of enigma to ponder, and those are the things that to me I take away from and that I come back to them again and again. Like when he says, for example. So the little man, uh, what's his name? The man from another place who is the arm of Mike, the other spirit that has turned against the Lodgers, maybe in a weird way trying to to, uh, is angry at Bob for whatever reasons, but anyways, the, the little guy when he's touching the table and he's talking about Garmin Bosia then he just starts to describe the formica table and its color and it's like, okay, well the, my latest interpretation was, what he's saying is that Garmin Bosia is what allows them to experience our world, these spirits need pain and sorrow to experience the wonder of this beautiful surface of this table this formica, they get to hmm. and there's a part where we hear Bob's voice voice telling Laura, I want to taste through your mouth, right? They want to be embodied. They're like hungry ghosts wanting to find a way to become embodied again in our world. But you can't get that. You don't have a character coming up and telling you this. You have to kind of put it together from all these clues and you'll never know if you're right or wrong. So I love that.
1: Yeah. In the missing pieces that goes even deeper, he says something like the chrome reflects our image. Yeah, and I like that, this idea of trying to Mm. become embodied. I think there is this kind of realization that they lack reality. You know, just Philip Jeffries saying almost desperately, pleadingly, like, it's a dream. We live inside a dream. It's that same kind of we need to be realized in some other fashion. Mm Mm-hmm. And that runs through, I think, a lot of both Firewalk with Me and The Return. Is, it's beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I like that. You're right. I want to taste through your mouth. Yeah. I want my Garmin Bosia. Um, yeah.
2: I think you're absolutely right. That's a brilliant insight. Never yeah. thought of that. But yeah, they want to feel our world. Yeah. And this is something also that has another inversion or reversal. There's also the hungry ghosts in our world that want the exact same thing, but to go from here to there. So, uh, Wyndham Earl in season two, and also the high school principal, what's his name, in
1: The Return? Oh, uh, Can't right. I don't remember his uh, name. I don't remember, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he wants to get into that. Well, do you interpret that little spiral thing as the lodge, the thing that they're chasing? I guess I mean, it's definitely a place where
2: that thinness or that frayedness of the barrier just full
1: on becomes like a
2: hole. Yeah,
1: I guess it's like I see the Red Room as something different from that, just because it seems like I, I don't know when David Lynch is almost sucked into it. And when Andy gets pulled into it, he's with the fireman. And at that point, it seems like that's a different place. That's, uh, but yeah. but it is another world for sure.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, we all, we have Twin Peaks fans, tend to use the lodge kind of as a yeah. metonym for the entire other world ecology that includes that fortress where the fireman lives and the mauve world where Cooper visits briefly and the room above the convenience store. And these are all different places. And, you know, one of my favorite scenes Of all is that scene, I think it's episode 14, but I'm not sure of the return where evil Coop needs to take care of some business. He needs to go and see Jeffries and he goes through all these different portals and there's different kind of checkpoints almost. He's conducted from one place to another and ends up and goes through a door at the end of a long hallway and suddenly we're in the courtyard of a cheap motel. I mean, obviously it's dreamlike. But it also reminds me very specifically of this phenomenon that I've talked about on this show before, what I call the dream city for years, years and years. I can't tell you when this began. I've been having dreams every now and then. Sometimes they come thick and fast and some, and I can go months without having any of them. Dreams that take place in a world that is familiar. It has familiar and durable landmarks. In fact, the landmarks change. They develop from one dream to another. And yet they're not fixed. They're durable, but they're not fixed. The relationship between these different points is fluid. It's constantly shifting. There are times when I have a dream where I'm like, oh, I'm in the ridge now. Like there's a ridge. And there's these kind of houses there. And I'm like, oh, I'm there again. And I realize this in the dream. And I also realize it like waking up and the paradoxical nature of this being like, it's a real landscape. It's self-existent in a way because it's a place I return to. And it in some ways obeys the rules of places in our world. And in other ways has nothing to do with those rules. And the ever-shifting yet continuous and to some extent, understandable landscape of the Twin Peaks other
1: world feels like it operates in a similar way. Yeah. It's very reminiscent Mm -hmm. also of the motel courtyard where Teresa Banks is and where Leland goes in and, you know, sees that his daughter and Ronette are there and, and leaves. So it has these kind of hallmarks of this other stuff that we're connected with. It also, that scene is so cool because when he's being led I guess by a woodsman maybe, or is it Mike? I don't remember but you see how it is superimposed over the woods. So like you see little flickers of the woods as they're going through to Mm -hmm. the hotel room door, which just shows, like we've been saying, these things are all built into each other. You know, the fabric is there and sometimes you get little glimpses of it and sometimes it becomes your reality, but it's all there at once, you know?
0: What I love about Twin Peaks is that Lynch is he's showing us these supernatural creatures and these fantastical Events. He's using tropes that you could find in like ghost stories and stuff, but he's not naming them that. He's just allowing them to be that. Look, So for example, to be walking in yeah. the woods and in the motel at the same time, because there's like two dimensions. Whereas in a kind of science right. fiction content, you say, oh, there are two dimensions. The motel is superimposed with, you'll have somebody explicating it. He's just allowing it to happen and, and lets you try to find the explanation. And in a way, that's, I think that's part of the, the Twin Peaks project. And this is something for me that was confirmed when I watched Pari eight of the return is that twin peaks on some level is an operation of re-enchantment for us now it's a way of how mm. do we allow things that we've convinced ourselves weren't real and that persist despite our conviction that they're not real how do we allow them to re-enter our consciousness without having to espouse obsolete or um, insufficient theories as to what these things are. For example, what's a ghost? Is a ghost... I just listened to uh, the British occultist. And he has a... Phil recommended this episode of his podcast, which is called... What is it? Occult... Occult. Occ- it's Duncan Barford and it's Occult Experiments in the Home. Right. Duncan Barford. Sorry. And he did an episode on ghosts and he really kind of just cracks open the cliche or the the trope of the ghost in order to allow it to have all these new affordances so that we can think of it without having to be overly literal about what we mean when we say ghost, you know, you can be haunted by the past in in strange ways. And you don't need to believe that the spirit of an individual dead person is visiting, you know what I mean? Like that's just one way of looking at it. Right. And I think Lynch is doing that. And what happens in part 8 in the return is that he he connects his entire universe to an event, right, which is Hiroshima, the the, or the not Hiroshima, but the uh, the first detonation of an atomic bomb in New Mexico, Project Trinity. Yeah. And he says that something happened at that moment that either let something back into our world or allowed something to manifest in a new way. But that what what he's hinting at to me anyways is that The proper interpretation of the significance of something like the atom bomb has to include the fantastical, the mythical. You need to read these events as more than just historical happenstance. You have to be able to look at them as something reverberating or refracting on multiple levels of meaning. Such that only something like fantasy or horror would allow you to fully ingest the significance of these events.
1: Totally. Jeffries
2: says, we live inside a dream. But what you're saying, JF, is we live inside a myth. Yes. And we is like everybody. Right. Yeah. And Lynch wanting us to hip to and that fact.
0: Th- that's kind of how I read Hume. It's that the imagination sets the rules of the real, not causality or, or reason uh, in the sense of the principle of sufficient reason. But anyways. Well,
1: I was just going to No, I was going to just try to build on this. I think the project is one of constant interpretation and he wants us to interpret and he, he hates closure. He says, closure is just another excuse for forgetting you saw the damn thing. And so, mm. you know, the Twin Peaks project is one of, just continual interpretation this is what makes it so fun this is why my daughter and I have had such great experience with it over such a long period of time like obsessively just reinterpreting it without at the same time coming up with some kind of like room 237 theory where everything fits into place perfectly because you know there's something about Lynch that just resists that and I think the thing that he wants is for this like it is a non-stop project and it's a communal project and like you're saying part of that project is meant to be not just on his work but on our own history and our own lives seeing that there are things under the surface interpreting our lives in all sorts of different ways not just the one way and yeah i think that's why he's a great artist But I think he has like a deeper and serious intention for doing that. And it's again, one that I think is positive because part of that interpretive project is a key to awakening. Another thing you have in Fire Walk With Me and in The Return at Interesting Spots is distractions, like a lot of noise. You know, like in Fire Walk With Me, the paradigmatic scene of this is... When Laura and Leland are driving their car and mm. there's all this like honking oh, yeah. and this guy, this van coming up behind him and, and, and Mike pulls up and he's yelling at uh, Leland and nobody can, it's just chaos. And there's, you know, the great scene outside the diner in the return where Bobby and, you know, there's this constant honking and it seems, and then also the window washing scene in the return it's there's it's like you're trying to figure something out but there's these loud cacophonous chaotic noises that are getting in the way of it and i feel like maybe that's these are the obstacles to doing that kind of deep interpretation that he wants us to do um, huh. reimagining or something but there there is this kind of yeah this chaotic Cacophony that is. There's nothing good about it. It just seems like it's uh, just a pure distraction that just unsettles us and makes us anxious without any kind of like uh, yeah yeah Like
0: a, a chaos without any redeeming force whatsoever. <laughs> just <laughs> right. like a pure and absolute chaos that would that yeah. be the worst news possible if that was the underlying world, right?
1: Yeah, um, at, at moments yeah. when like things could progress in some way because I think sometimes these things happen when characters may be about to make connections and it's just Mm -hmm. an obstacle to making those connections. Mm.
0: And that's kind of part and parcel of work in this field of let's call it the paranormal or the, the, you know, paranormal in the literal sense of interpreting outside of the normal mode that's been sanctioned by our political academic authorities. When you're stepping out, one interpretation leads to another, and eventually things get too noisy. You see this in Hellier, that show that we discussed on uh, Weird Studies. It's a little web series. I don't know if you've seen it. These these young paranormal investigators hear about goblins in the hills of, was it Kentucky? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and then they go investigating, and it just leads into this kind of chapel perilous smorgasbord of synchronicity and weirdness. And, and there are points where things get so cacophonous and chaotic that it's like the only way go forward would cost you your sanity, right? It seems like that type of chaos is always waiting at the fringe. It's it's kind of the occupational hazard of, of a, an open, a truly open project of interpretation.
2: Well, that's kind of an interesting, enantiodromia. That's one of our favorite words on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that something when pushed to its furthest limits will reverse into its opposite and what you just said jf is an interesting points to an interesting enantiadromia that like interpretation pushed past a certain point becomes the negation of interpretation this just pure chaos reminds me of a Notably unsuccessful chili I cooked once when I was uh, learning to cook, and I really want I had we had friends over and I really wanted to make a good pot of chili and I kept adding things and I, I was really insecure I'm like it's not interesting enough I had to keep adding more and more things until it just tasted like I like I had a mouthful of dirt like it's just like it tasted <laughs> yeah. of nothing but intensity and I remember my friend did his best to be polite he's like,, mm, complex <laughs> 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 That's, I've had that experience writing as
0: well. When you're trying to write, you're trying exactly. to. Exactly. Like, I'm going to yeah. write on all these layers at the same time, and, and it just becomes just pure chaos. But I do want to say, though, that in those scenes in Lynch, it seems sometimes like that chaos is imposed from something that doesn't want the characters to go further, right? As opposed to something the characters kind of concoct on their own, right? right. It's probably both. But there seems to be, like, in that scene where Mike, the one armed man, is trying to tell Laura what's going on and there's yeah. all this noise it looks like all that noise is there to stop it from happening yeah. like this wasn't planned this wasn't part of the script you're not this is not so all these forces are deployed to just, to stop it and I think that that's probably the way it feels when you're doing I mean I've, I've had a little bit of an experience in that when you're interpreting and engaging a kind of paranormal investigation of some sort or trying to explain synchronicities as you you don't encounter this confusion like it's coming from you it really does feel like like the world is feeding you too much information and conflicting information. It seems like something's trying to stop you. And in Hellier, I remember parts where they thought something's trying to stop us from going any further. John Keel in the Mothman prophecies has the same experience where he's like, this is crazy. These forces don't want us to know anymore and they're conspiring to foil us. I don't know what to make of that in literal terms, but it certainly, it seems like those scenes in Lynch are, are hinting at that phenomenon. Some kind of limit,
1: yeah. Some kind of a force, an intentional force that wants to keep you trapped in whatever cycle. Is that
0: that Judy?
2: Maybe.
1: No, it's it's David Lynch. (laughs) Yeah,
2: exactly. (laughs) Well, I'm actually not even kidding because it's like one of the things that's most interesting about his approach as a director, of course I'm going to say this, but his approach to music and sound and the degree to which... What we think of as just sound, diegetic sound or uh, non-diegetic, unpitched noise and music, the degree to which those things are an intimate state of relation. So like, you know, the uh, atom bomb blast in part eight of Twin Peaks season three is set to Penderecki's Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, which is the technical term for it, a sound mass composition where you're composing... Not like individual pitches and melodies and like, you know, harmonies where you're subtracting a bunch of pitches to come up with a specific harmonic flavor, but rather just like blocks of sound. Like, you know, every pitch between this note and this other note, two and a half octaves above. And it's not an accident that Lynch loves Penderecki. He loves that kind of all over, almost like abstract expressionist style, or just like splashing paint on the canvas, just creating all over creations of sound, blocks of sound, sound that you almost feel like you can walk around in. It's like Virginia Um, Woolf said, uh, saturating every atom is how she described, like good writing. Yeah. Yeah. He loves that. And there are, like lower saturation versions of that, his famous ominous drones and hums, which sometimes are pitched and sometimes are not. And then there are moments where he goes full on. He loves that kind of composition. I think his paintings are a little bit like this as well. And sometimes these noisy bits are not even particularly black lodgy. Like the one bit, Tamler, that you mentioned where... like a gun is discharged by accident and bobby who's now a heroic policeman goes out to investigate and there's this insane woman who's just laying on her horn and it goes on for a ridiculously long time you know in a moment like that it doesn't seem to be about like oh we're trembling on the verge of a revelation uh it actually seems like one of his sort of comic beats but why is it there (laughs) It's there to some extent because David Lynch really, really loves those kinds of compositions and he can use them in comic scenes. He can use them in heartbreaking scenes. And now I'm being all formalistic, which in a way is like breaking the rules of the game because we're trying to understand like diegetic inside the world of Twin Peaks, reasons why things are the way they are. And I'm stepping outside of that with a kind of formalism saying like, oh no, it's like Pandoretsky. So maybe I'm, I'm cheating a little bit. No, but
1: uh, I think that
0: makes sense. It does
1: make sense. Like, he doesn't like things getting too tidy, David Lynch. And the scene right before that in season three, what leads into it is Shelly and Bobby and their daughter... And it starts to become almost explicit how, oh, the daughter is still trapped in the cycle that her mom was trapped in, attracted to the bad boy, and her mom is still attracted to the bad boy, you know, and then all of a sudden you get this chaos and, and craziness. It's like, just as maybe you were getting a little too tidy with how you are seeing things, all that just gets thrown back out. And that's a, that's really, that's an interesting idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even if we were to say this is just something Lynch likes, there remains the reason. Well, what is it that he likes about it? And I think that that this universe is overdetermined. There's too many ways to go forward. There are too many forces at work. Even the past is unsettled. To me, that is one of the the most horrific things, things that make me feel that Twin Peaks is a profoundly, is horror is this idea that the past is unsettled. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know if I can name a scene to to substantiate that claim other than, you know, the things we've already said, this playing with time. But again, this idea of crime investigation as a kind of temporal or or trans-temporal experience, like when a detective comes to a crime scene, he or she is looking at an event in the past and the, the detective lives in the past. In a Bergsonian way, like, like the past is this duration that still endures. And you really have to believe that the past is somehow real. But the problem is that the past is real. And also, as Borges showed us, bifurcating and in a kind of quantum state where things, you know, we Mm. can't really know how things happened. I don't know that our world becomes scary. I find that our world
1: becomes scary if time is unsettled um well i mean like the big example of that right is cooper going back and in if you interpret it literally which i don't like to do but uh some people do he he stopped laura from being killed right. and so he actually took time and changed it changed it and that's that was a mistake it was a tragic mistake
0: uh, exactly. That's what's interesting. The yeah. change of the past is very, very dangerous and not a good thing to do. There's a whole uh, scene right now in occultism of retrocausal magic. I don't know if you've read about that. But instead of trying to, to aim your visualization, op- your, your magical operations at changing the future, oh, I need some money to pay the rent or I need, you know, to find true love or whatever, you actually try to change your past. I find that... Profoundly
1: disturbing as an idea, very disturbing. Um, yeah, because <laughs> then what are you now? Like you exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the the connection between this and home is also one that's sort of I, very deeply puzzling to me. And the missing pieces. There's this scene which is just like a prelude to the return, where Cooper is. Um, in the red room, the ring is gone, kind of symbolizing, I guess, Laura's story is done. And Cooper says, what do I have to do now? What am I going to do now? And the the little man says, there's nothing left for you to do but go home or something to that effect.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And, he, and then just starts laughing kind of. Uh, it's a kind of, I don't know, but evil laugh or at least malevolent laugh cooper's story of the return to some degree is taking laura home or going home himself and i don't know how that relates to this idea of the past but there is a deep connection there between this idea of home and this idea of an unstable past or uh, an encroaching past a fluid past i don't know yeah i'm trying to think of a way to disagree
2: and say, no, maybe it's good in some cases for the present to triumph over the past. But no. Well, I think I'm with you on this. Well, I was thinking of like, okay, this might all seem very abstract, but uh, think of a very obvious example, which is the attempt to rewrite history simply by omitting things we don't like about it. Mm. Um, you know, the, the current like, affairs segment begins. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm always trying
1: to avoid. But uh, let's just turn this into a critical race theory discussion. <laughs> <to debate>. <laughs> yes? <laughs> or, or, you know, you think about like uh,
2: photographs of um, Communist Party officials. Yeah. Uh, that get retouched over the years as various people fall out of favor and get turned into potted palms in yep. photographs. There's something just undeniably sinister about that. But uh, I don't have anything more intelligent to say than that. So Well,
1: uh, but it's, I think, you know, our next movie that we're going to do for Very Bad Wizards is Caché, which is the Michael oh, Haneke man. movie, which is really about repressing your past, just deleting certain aspects from it, refusing to acknowledge it. And I think if there is a bad thing that you can do in the David Lynch world is that it is yeah sort of deleting aspects of your past and not facing them and the people who transcend or progress are the ones who don't do that even when it's hard
0: you're absolutely right and i think that speaks exactly to what you were saying earlier about those moments of awakening that are always good even if they're painful it's that You know, remember the scene in in Fire Walk With Me where Laura goes home because the little boy with the mask told her that Bob was looking for her diary. So she runs home and she goes upstairs and she opens her bedroom door and there's Bob behind her dresser. And she runs away. She runs out of the house and she hides in the bushes. And then she looks and then she sees Leland Palmer come out, her father. And then she goes, it's not him. It's not him. She, She has this amazing scene where she's just losing it completely. And knowing and not knowing at the same time exactly. who has been doing. And it's not a question of who is doing this to me. It's who what happened, what has been happening that I've been able to somehow trick myself into thinking wasn't happening. So it's about the realization, it's the realization of what has been happening, of the past as it it's very similar to cachet. This taking uh ownership of your actual past of the, the return of the repressed in a positive sense, I guess. And um, yes, right. I think that that has to do with, yeah, I think that's what's going on in, 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 Lynch's work.
1: Or not doing it. Like it's either doing it or not doing it. And uh, yeah, I, it's so funny that you bring up that. Cause I have in my notes, I took some notes watching fire walk with me and that, that scene where she's in the bushes, I wrote down, she knows, she doesn't yeah. know. Like, both of those things are happening at the same time, which is why it's still a realization when Leland's face appears when they're having sex. But, exactly. Um, it's because even though she saw him, she doesn't fully know. She hasn't fully faced it yet. And and the it's only that later moment that she fully... Reckons with it, and then everything is a linear, straight line to her getting herself murdered. Essentially, getting herself after murder,
0: and and at the same time, you know, liberating herself
2: through that or whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, there's, there's a, an
2: abs- absolutely heartbreaking example of this, which is when Leland dies in season two. You know, Bob yeah. as Leland when they they catch him, and Bob makes Leland commit suicide by bashing his head into the wall. And as Leland is dying, bleeding on the floor and being held there by Cooper and Truman, it all comes flooding in him at once. And before Bob has made this happen, he says, you know, when I pull the ripcord, I I forget exactly what he says, but something like when I pull the ripcord, you know, he'll know. Like, it (laughs) all comes flooding back. He suddenly, one of the things that's really weird actually throughout the entire Twin Peaks, story arc is, are we looking at Leland or are we looking at Bob? And it's very ambiguous. To what extent does Leland know he's possessed? To what extent does he know the Mm -hmm. things that he does? That's never made explicit really. But in that moment, uh, it's a moment of anamnesis, of unforgetting. And it all floods him all at once. And it is the saddest. It's the, it's the worst fate I can imagine for a human being to have done all of that. And then suddenly for the whole past to descend on him all at once, as Philip K. Dick says, the whole can of film all at it's once. So
0: It's such a terrible notion, the idea that you might But, you know, one of us might one day realize that we've done something absolutely terrible. You know what I mean? Like, it's just such a horrific idea that you might have aspects of your life that you've completely repressed uh, or forgotten about. Phil and I coined a new term on the show instead of unconscious or conscious, disconscious, which is like to know and yet not know something at the same time. Yeah. I find that a useful term to describe, for example, that scene that you just recounted there with uh, when Laura sees her father come out of the house. It's you know, but you don't know at the same, like you're in, yeah. in between.
1: Consciousness is very strange, right? And, and I think that's Leland's position too. I mean, I, I sometimes I think don't like that scene that you're talking about like the idea that this has all been flooding into Leland at once because it sort of lets him off the hook a little bit in a way Mm -hmm. that I think is isn't plausible for a reading and there's that that really kind of devastating line at the end of Fire Walk With Me where he's first there and he shows her the the diary and he says I always thought you knew it was me right oh uh, yes that's right and it's like... So you can see from that that he's built this story in his mind that Laura knows it's him and accepts it and at some level likes it or, or yeah. you know, is, is, is aroused by it, enjoys it. And this idea to him that she's been covering his face is actually something that's really painful for him at that moment. I guess... That shows to me that he know he he knows what he's doing, you know, in those moments, as Leland. I see him as Leland there because just a second later, Bob comes and he says something very cryptic, like, "I never knew you knew it was me or something like that um, yeah. but but I think what it does is separate. Like, no, that's Bob. This is Leland right here. And Leland is aware of what he's been done, even if he's built some fantasy version of it where it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Or even if Bob is an actual entity
0: possessing him, right? There's the right. old trope in gothic fiction that the the vampire, the demon won't come in unless he, he is invited. That to a certain sense, you need... He, it, the fact that he's possessed by this extra planar entity doesn't let him off the hook. No. Um, he no. he he set the table for this thing to come over somehow. We don't know all the details. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, it, the ambiguity there is very strong, right, between very strong. I always thought you knew it was me and then that moment in season two, which, granted, Lynch was less involved with. Maybe he didn't like that scene. We don't know all the details, but I personally like that scene. Because I think there's something to the idea that right before you die, your kind of life plays out before you rise. That's been reported by – so you are flooded with a kind of um, story, a kind of narrative of the whole thing, which is impossible to translate into – language, because it's it's just like this crazy, ultra trans-cinematic experience of your whole life, but you kind of get a, a kind of judgment to that point, maybe, or something that you get to see what you were yeah, yeah. that you didn't know you were. It's like I seeing don't, yourself on camera. Yeah. yeah,
2: I don't see how there's a contradiction between these two points of view, because like, I don't think there's a single person listening to this episode who hasn't done something really shitty in their lives, where this kind of complicated disconsciousness played a part. We're yeah. like, yes, I did those things. I know I did those things. But there is everybody, surely everybody has had the experience where suddenly the moral weight or the, the meaning yeah. is what breaks in on you. And you see yourself exactly what you just said, JF, as if like watching yourself on camera. Uh, you yeah. see yourself as another. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and the rationalizations fail. It's the rationalizations that allow you to continue maintaining a sense of identity in the face of what you've done. You know, like uh, in the case of something as horrific as what Leland Palmer did, he had this whole story, as Tamler was saying, that he'd invented. And that's part of what breaks down in that final moment when everything comes he sees what he actually did you know
1: and all of the fantasies fail i guess my only issue with it is so i feel like he had that moment in fire walk with me and so then to have it again i mean I, i guess you you can have it and then build another new Fantasy world to hide it from yourself again, and so that's I guess a better, maybe richer way of looking at it. I also just I resist any kind of thing where it was Bob, like where the ambiguity is settled, but it's settled in the direction of it was Bob just possessing kind of an innocent man, or you know, so oh yeah, um, no that yeah, but but I don't think that's that's that's, that's not just not a plausible uh, reading. No matter what. And, you know, the, the season two, see that that episode where he kills Maddie and we first find out that it's Leland is just Brutal. it's just such a masterpiece. And there's a you know, there's an allusion to it in Fire Walk With Me that I noticed where when Laura goes into the roadhouse. And Julie Cruz, I think, playing the same song that she plays in that episode, where all of a sudden everyone just starts crying in the roadhouse. This is right after Maddie died. There's no way for the people to know that, but everybody knows it somehow. And it's this just devastating kind of the the, the moment there. And that's can I say one last thing? If we're wrapping up, I just want to give a little just love to Cheryl Lee's performance in Fire oh Walk God. with Me. I think it's just. So remarkable, and the fact that I don't know why people didn't recognize that at the time. In, oh, at, for real. At, at, like, like, I feel like she should have just, it's the performance of the decade. And I, I'm just kind of in awe of it every time I see it. She just yeah. emptied the clip in yeah. that performance, she just put everything in it. I had the f-
2: good fortune of seeing her and Ray Wise. There was a special screening of Firewalk with me at a lovely old restored theater here in town in Bloomington. Mm. Uh, Ray Wise and Cheryl Lee were guests. And Ray Wise is just such a charming and funny guy. An old song and dance man. And he like got up and did a little dance and sing and did some some audience involvement. It was fucking awesome. And Cheryl Lee was so interested. She said wonderful things. And I realized this morning, I can't remember any of them. But what really strikes me is her affect, which is just like like a deeply serious person for whom Lara is a very real person to whom she has responsibilities.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. There's an,
2: I I can't quite put it in words, but an intimacy in the relation between the player and the part there. Really, in a weird way, it really did feel like it was partly also seeing Lara. I know that's a silly and sentimental
1: thing to say, but. Not at all. Like I could, I, I feel like I get that from just reading interviews with her. And, She's yeah. protective of Laura. That was something yeah. that really emerged.
2: It's interesting because in the diegetic reality of Twin Peaks, everybody loves Laura. That's the big thing in the season. Homecoming queen did meals on wheels. Everybody loved her. And then you realize she has this incredible dark sort of secret life. But do um, you feel that in the, Extra diegetic reality, too. Being in a room full of people, all of them wearing Twin Peaks themed apparel, all of them who, like me, are able to recite just about every line of dialogue in this film. Feeling the love and sorrow, feeling that in real time was such a such a treat, not a treat. It was a blessing. It was like I was so fortunate to be able to experience that. And the feeling of just love, not just for Cheryl Lee. We do love Cheryl Lee. She's such an amazing actress. But like love of Laura, that was so palpable in that experience as well. We love
1: Laura. Yeah, my daughter is reading a book right now called The Ghost of Laura Palmer, but it's just women's reflections on what Laura Palmer meant to them. Oh, And it's, you know, it's clear that it's deeply meaningful. It's like you say, it's also Cheryl Lee. And Cheryl Lee wrote a poem for it, and she wrote uh, a little essay. And a lot of it is just fans of the show just saying, and, you know, victims of abuse. And just to what extent that Laura Palmer and Cheryl Lee, it was their thing that Laura never had, like somebody that rescued, or at least help them make sense of their own lives and their own experience. And I think she does that. I think one of the sad things about Twin Peaks, you see it in Fire Walk With Me, you see it in the original series, is they all loved her, but they all let her down. They knew. They knew what was happening, and they didn't act. And Laura knows that, too. She she realizes that there's nobody there that's going to save her. And, <laughs> and and then in that way, it connecting to your point about sacrifice Jf and and the connecting it to the Turkey line is so brilliant because it's such an otherwise just preposterous scene, you know, like played completely straight. but like I, I love that you make even that like something that's like deep and I think true. like she sacrificed herself for the town. And uh, you know, one of the most interesting readings of season three, Twin Peaks, is the sacrifice was not made because she lived and Twin Peaks is falling apart. It's completely disenchanted and messed up and grimy and dirty, just like Deer Meadow. And yeah. so uh, like I think there is something just and Lynch has said this about Laura Palmer and Cheryl Lee and that that is uh, it's transcendent. I like
2: to think that what we've been doing here for the last hour and a half or more, interpreting, and what everybody who loves Twin Peaks does is interpret, interpret, interpret. Uh, We're all trying to not let Laura down. That's beautiful. I love that.
1: You enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing to weird studies on your favorite podcasting platform you can also follow us on twitter visit the weird studies subreddit
0: and of course support us on patreon music for the podcast is composed and performed by pierre yves martel and the show is made with the assistance of meredith michael thank you for listening